0: Here it is!
1: From deep inside your audio device of choice. You know, it's never really too late, is it? The Pentagon, you've heard of it, it's the big five-sided building with all the generals. It's launched a major examination of civilian deaths in major military operations. This is the Pentagon's response to the criticism that it's failed to protect innocent bystanders in counterterrorism wars around the world. Far-reaching initiative is what the Washington Post calls it to create the military's first-ever policy on civilian casualties. We've been doing this now for how long? When was Vietnam? Which senior Pentagon officials began last year. It seeks to answer a central question. Why is the military's estimate of civilian deaths so much smaller than outside tallies? Yes, I know. Seems obvious to us, but we're not inside a five-sided building. Last week, the Pentagon reported that 1,190 civilians have been killed by American strikes in Iraq and Syria since the beginning of the campaign against the Islamic State in 2014. But Air Wars, a respected monitoring group, put the figure at at least 7,478 dead. That's more than six times as high. What could account for the discrepancy? The effort is underway as the Pentagon races to conclude its campaign against ISIS. While officials have described the targeting of the Islamic State as the most precise in history, and we haven't ever heard that before, a high civilian death toll has fueled questions about whether the president's bare-knuckled approach has resulted in greater loss of life. When was Vietnam? Over the past year, officials from across the military have reviewed the way the Pentagon plans and constructs airstrikes its procedures for handling allegations of civilian deaths, and decisions about when to acknowledge errant strikes. That's in the NEVER file. The assessment comes as lawmakers press the military to improve its handling of non-combatant deaths, because that's a bad look. That study's existence and findings have not previously been made public. It recommends a more open, standardized investigations process, but it does not seek to determine the root cause of a spike in casualties during the peak of the operations against IS. Why would you want to know that? Watchdog groups see the effort as a hopeful sign, but remain concerned it could reaffirm existing problems or fall short of the substantial change the Pentagon leaders say they want. The Pentagon has now started admitting details on strike dates and locations since... um, the upsurge in strikes after Trump's December 16th declaration. He wants to get out of there, making it harder for outside groups to verify casualty reports. Military officials cited operational concerns for the shift, but didn't provide details. The study, back to that study, says the military has not adequately used outside information to verify whether civilians have died processes, it says, for examining allegations varied between geographic commands, like the ones where the war is going on. Individuals familiar with the study say there's a disagreement among its authors over how critical the report should be. Some believed it missed an opportunity to directly address shortcomings. Others said a scathing analysis might lead operational commanders to dismiss it out of hand, you know, like they would. These differences are visible in discussion of the system for distinguishing between combatants and civilians. The study states that the positive identification process, which relies on drone imagery or intel, has sufficient guidance and structure and therefore doesn't increase the risk. That assertion is disputed in a lengthy footnote by several authors who describe it as a primary culprit. If investigators rely on the same information to investigate a strike as they did to rule out the presence of civilians, Ahead of time, these authors argued, how could they possibly reach a conclusion that civilians had died? The Never Too Late Department, always open here on Hello, Welcome to the Show.
0: If I should ever bring you inside my life, I'm happier than the morning sun, and that's the least that I would be. If I should ever bring you inside my life, all my life I was alone. I would find my part Now I see there's joy inside your heart Every day I search for a star That never was in the sky Now I see this star in the morning sun and That's the way you said that's I what I you told did. me If I gave you a chance to come inside my life I, I am happier in the morning sun and That's the way we're always, been. Way we're always been. ever since the day you came side of my life Love i bring you, you inside, inside of a life me I believe that everyone should be happy in the morning sun
1: From Southern California, Santa Monica, the home of the homeless, I'm Harry Shearer, welcoming you to this edition of the show.
0: Our house is a very, very, very smart house.
1: So smart. In the case of low-cost smart light bulbs, investigated by limited results, the issue isn't what they do while connected, but what they keep in their tiny brains. And how? And How? All the bugs they tested proved to have no real security at all, protecting the information kept on the chips inside. This is a report from TechCrunch. After exposing the uh, brains, they attached a few leads, and in a moment, each device spat out the boot data and was ready to take commands. The data was, without exception, totally unencrypted, including the wireless password to the network to which the device had been connected. One device also exposed its private key used to create secure connections to whatever servers it connects to, to check for upgrades, upload user data to the cloud, and so on. The information would be available to anyone who grabbed the bulb out of the trash or stole it from an outdoor fixture or bought it secondhand. Seriously, 90% of Internet of Things devices are developed without security in mind. It is just a disaster, wrote the firm Limited Results. You heard that from Bruce Schneier on this program last November. These particular bits of information exposed on these devices aren't that harmful in and of themselves. What's important to note is the utter lack of care that went into these devices. Not just their code, but their construction. They really are just basic enclosures around an off-the-shelf wireless board with no consideration given to safety, security, or longevity. And it's not limited to smart bulbs. These devices all proudly assert that they support Alexa, Google Home, or other standards which may give users a false sense that they are in some way accredited, inspected, or otherwise held to basic standards. In addition to all of them having essentially no security at all, one had its conductive metal shell insulated from the brain only by a loose piece of (laughs) Adhesive adhesive paper. This kind of thing is an electrical fire or at least a short waiting to happen. Says TechCrunch, limit your own risk. Have your smart home devices and such isolated on a subnet or guest network. Make sure that they're password, protection, password protected and take common sense measures like changing that password regularly. Yeah, you're going to do that for your light bulbs. I believe that. A Lake Barrington, Illinois homeowner hasn't had a restful night's sleep in 10 days after he said his Nest home security cameras and thermostats were accessed or accessed, as we say in English, by malicious hackers. I couldn't believe that these devices I had put up in my home to watch over at my family were now being used against me, said Arjun Sud to uh, WMAQ-TV in Chicago. After they put their son to bed, seven months old he is, they heard a strange noise coming from inside the nursery. I heard a deep voice talking to him, Sud said. And his wife also noticed that the Nest thermostat had been turned up to a frightening 90 degrees. He brought his son, now sweaty and awake, downstairs to the living room where another Nest camera activated and someone began cursing at them. Sood is an avid user of smart home technology. He has two Nest thermostats, 16 Nest cameras, and a security system installed in his house. Nest, owned by Google, said its systems were not breached. Sued said he did not have two-factor authentic- authentication, which Google recommends, because he didn't know it was an option. He said Google and Nest should have alerted him of this added level of protection and notified him when someone else accessed his account. Yeah, and there should be world peace. Many IoT products, as we've noted, have notoriously lacked security. There have been a number of incidents since the beginning of this year, including a a hack here again of Nest security cameras that allowed the hackers to urge owners to subscribe to a YouTube channel run by PewDiePie. Even more worryingly, another Nest owner was told that North Korean missiles were en route to major U.S. cities. We told you about that a couple of weeks ago. Japan's take-up adoption of Internet of Things is lower than that of most countries. More than 50% of the cyber attacks it, uh, it detected last year involved Internet of Things things, according to Forbes. Yes, you're going to have a smart house now news of the godly you better you better sit down you better get a cup of coffee you better plump up a pillow behind your lower back and uh, you might watch out for whiplash this this week's news of the godly pope francis has admitted that priests have sexually abused nuns in one case the nuns were kept as sex slaves he said in that case his predecessor Pope Benedict was forced to shut down an entire congregation of nuns who were being abused by priests. It's the first time Pope has acknowledged the sexual abuse of nuns by the clergy he said the church was attempting to address the problem but it's still going on he he said the church was aware of the issue and working on it. It's a path we've been on he said. It happens largely in, quote, certain congregations, predominantly new ones, and in certain regions more than others. Unquote. Thanks for the detail, babe. A few uh, weeks ago, the Catholic Church's global organization for nuns denounced the culture of silence and secrecy that prevented them from speaking out. A few days ago, the Vatican's women's magazine, Women Church World, who knew? I buy it for the articles. Condemned the abuse, saying in some cases nuns were forced to abort priests' children. Something you might be interested to know that's prohibited by Catholicism. But more whiplash ahead. A Vatican official who handled sex abuse cases for the church has quit two months after being accused of sexual abuse. Hermann Geisler resigned from his position as chief of staff of the Congregation for the Doctrine of the Faith, that body handles discipline in sexual abuse cases. He maintained his innocence, but said he was resigning to protect the church, to limit the damage already done to the congregation and to his community. Last year, a former nun accused an unnamed priest of making sexual advances toward her while in the confessional. Doris Wagner, the woman, later identified the priest to be Mr. Geisler, according to the National Catholic Reporter. Now, you know the Pope, the aforementioned Francis the Talking Pope, has... uh, announced and is preparing to convene an unprecedented summit on sexual abuse this month. It's viewed as among the most pivotal moments of his papacy, according to the Washington Post. The Vatican is now cautioning folks not to expect too much. Said Francis, I permit myself to say I've perceived a bit of an inflated expectation. We need to deflate the expectations. So the the press office, now n- renamed the deflation office, released a statement calling the meeting just one stage in a 15-year journey. The Pope described his goal as educating bishops on the problem of abuse and how to handle it, which advocates say the Church has talked about for years. Vatican watchers say it's unclear whether the Church can emerge from the summit with concrete policymaking reforms that have been urged by advocates, like changes in canon law or new mechanisms that aim to hold accountable Bishops who cover up abuse. We all will be holding our breath for that, of course. But, speaking of bishops, the Vatican received information in 2015 and 2017 that an Argentine bishop close to Pope Francis had taken naked selfies, exhibited obscene behavior, and had been accused of misconduct with seminarians, according to his former vicar. This undermines Vatican claims that allegations of sexual abuse were only made a few months ago. Francis accepted Bishop Gustavo Gianchetta's resignation a year and a half ago after priests in the northern Argentine diocese of Oran complained about his authoritarian rule, and a former vicar, seminary rector, you got a vicar and a rector. And another prelate provided reports to the Vatican alleging abuses of power, inappropriate behavior, and sexual harassment of adult seminarians. Scandal over Giancetta is the latest to implicate Francis as he and the hierarchy as a whole face this unprecedented crisis of confidence over handling of cases of clergy sexual abuse. Pope's decision to allow Giancetta To resign quietly, then promote him to number two position in one of the Vatican's most sensitive offices, has raised questions again about whether the Pope turned a blind eye to misconduct of his allies and dismissed allegations against them as ideological attacks. A northern Wisconsin priest admitted in 1983 that he sexually abused a child. The local sheriff's department referred the case to a Catholic bishop instead of prosecutors according to uh, the Warsaw Daily Herald. Thomas Erickson, priest at St. Peter's in the town of Winter, was questioned after a local family reported he had exposed himself to one of their children, according to a 36-year-old report from the Sheriff's Department. He admitted a day after the report was filed that he had assaulted the child, but he was allowed to leave the Sheriff's Department offices to report to the bishop, George Albert Hammes. He evaded arrest and criminal charges until last November even though more victims came forward to investigators in the county eight years ago, and the former priest again confessed two years ago to molesting boys in the early 1980s. When he left, the sheriff's department reported the bishop. He was placed on sick leave for four years and then moved to Minneapolis. (laughs) He left the priesthood in 1989 after a civil case against a diocese led to a $3 million settlement with two victims. Erickson is now 71. He was arrested in November in Minneapolis and faces four separate charges stemming from his time at St. Peter's. Two charges of second-degree assault of an unconscious victim, one count of first-degree sexual assault of a child, one count of second-degree sexual assault of a child. None of those involves the victim from the 1983 Sheriff's Department report. He's been busy. He's been busy. After accusations of sex abuse, the Vatican has laicized american richard dashbach a former missionary who ran orphan orphanages in east timor for 27 years accusations surfaced early last year that dashbach who arrived in the country in 1966 had been sexually abusing young girls who were in his care in an enclave which sits separate from the rest of east timor surrounded by indonesian territory the case is now under investigation by local police this is the first time that uh, case of sexual abuse of minors by a member of the Catholic clergy has come to light in East Timor. The two orphanages are currently home to about 120 children. Hundreds more have passed through their doors, among other portals, over the years. The Vatican received the accusations in March 2018. former priest resisted being sent back to East Timor for several days. He was suspended and forbidden to perform his priestly celebrations while the order conducted its investigation on behalf of the Vatican. The police were informed shortly afterward. Catholic leaders in Texas, as you know, by now perhaps, identify 286 priests and others accused of sexually abusing children, a number that represents one of the largest collections of names to be released since that grand jury report in Pennsylvania released the names in that state last year. Of course, Texas is a big state. One of the biggest. Fourteen dioceses in Texas named those credibly accused of abuse or abused of accuse. The only diocese not to provide names, Fort Worth, did so more than a decade ago and provided an updated accounting in October. Only a handful of states have had every diocese release names. Most of them have only one or two Catholic districts. News of the godly lit. You, you, you can, if you haven't been sitting down, you can sit down now. Otherwise, get up. News of the Godly, a copyrighted feature of this broadcast. Now news of our freedom-loving friends in Saudi Arabia, the land of 15,000 princes. Count them. Returning from her fact-finding mission to Turkey, a U.N. investigator concluded this week that Saudi officials likely perpetrated the, quote, brutal and premeditated killing, unquote, of Washington Post journalist Jamal Khashoggi. The murder of him and the sheer brutality of it has brought irreversible tragedy to his loved ones says the u.n special rapporteur on extrajudicial summary or arbitrary executions it is also she added raising a number of international implications which demand the urgent attention of the international community including the u.n she traveled to turkey's capital city ankara as well as istanbul the city where the murder occurred British barrister Helena Kennedy forensics expert Duarte Nuno Vieira and homicide investigator Paul Johnston accompanied the UN investigator and have been continuing their investigation inside of Turkey they'll release their full findings in June their preliminary findings accuse Saudi Arabia of impeding Turkey's investigation diplomatic immunity was never supposed to work this way said the UN investigator the circumstances of the killing she said And the response by state representatives in its aftermath may be described as, quote, immunity for impunity, unquote. Boy, there's a slogan. Some beer, pick that up and run with it. Saudi Arabia is detaining female activists in cruel and inhumane conditions that meet the threshold of torture under both international and Saudi law. A committee of three British MPs has found. Notice the absence of Americans in these investigations and reports. Interesting, ain't it? The conclusions indicate growing unease among Western allies over alleged rights abuses among under Crown Prince Mohammed bin Bonsaw, the kingdom's de facto leader. This report from The Guardian. The ag- ad hoc panel sought access to eight jailed women to assess their welfare, but received no response from the Saudi ambassador. The panel's report concludes that the detainees, female activists arrested last spring advocating for allowing women to drive, had been subjected to cruel and inhumane treatment, including sleep deprivation, assault, threats to life, and solitary confinement. Their treatment is likely to amount to torture, says this report. I would say that just sounds like good old-fashioned enhanced interrogation. The report says if they're not provided with urgent access to medical assistance, they are at risk of developing long-term health conditions and eh, tell it to Dick Cheney culpability rests not only with the direct perpetrators, but also those who are responsible for or acquiesce in it. It says the Saudi authorities at the highest levels could in principle be responsible for the crime of torture, unquote. Well, after your murder, torture seems like a, the detained activists, as I say, were strong supporters of women's right to drive. The Saudi government acceded to that demand last year, but seems determined to ascribe that move solely to the reform-minded leadership of the prince. On their arrest, the women were labeled as traitors in the Saudi press. There have been persistent reports of mistreatment. Saudi Arabia says it does not have political prisoners, denies torture allegations. Officials say monitoring of activists is needed to ensure social stability. Our stability-loving friends in the land of 15,000 princes.
2: If the nightingales could sing like you They'd sing much sweeter than they do You brought a new kind of love to me And if the Sandman brought me dreams of you I'd want to sleep my whole life through You brought a new love to me I know that I'm the slave You're the queen Still you can understand That underneath it all You're a maid And I am only a man I would work and slave The whole day through If I could hurry home to you You brought a new kind of love to me I'm the slave You're the queen Still you might Understand That underneath it all You're a maid And I am Only a man I would work And slave My whole life through If I could hurry Home to you You brought a new Kind of love
1: From Santa Monica, this is the show. So this week, we learned through a uh, report from CNN. Do you know the international channel that CNN has? They have actual news on it, not just panels of people arguing. It's amazing. Wait till they find out. And they had a report this week to the effect that... See if this rings a bell. Military equipment supplied by the United States to the Saudi-led there's that word again Saudi-led coalition fighting against the Houthi rebels in Yemen that military equipment is either um, being lost or redistributed and finding its way to rebel militias no that didn't that's not what happened in Syria oh yeah it is it is It, it was and is so it's um maybe it's a system. President <laughs> President Trump gave his State of the Union his delayed State of the Union address this week to a joint session of Congress and the Supreme Court and other dignitaries. Uh, I'm sure they didn't notice that something about his teleprompter reading was just a little goofy i think in the delay in the scheduling you know it was supposed to happen a week or two ago before the uh, shutdown they they uh forgot to put back in the little things that said change of subject before a paragraph that changed the subject so you had the repeated experience of hearing President Trump continue as if on the same topic, yet instead switching topics dramatically. Maybe it just improved uh, co- uh, comprehension in the audience. I don't know. But, to me, the more interesting story of the week concerning the occupant of the White House was from Axios.com, an online news source, which exclusively published the private schedules of the president, <laughs> president for the last three months. Trump, an early riser, usually spends the first five hours of the day in what's called executive time. That's time that's not scheduled for any particular event. Each day's schedule places him in location, Oval Office, between 8 and 11 a.m., but uh, Trump, who often wakes before 6, is never in the Oval Office during those hours, according to six sources with direct knowledge. Instead, he spends his mornings in the residence, watching TV, reading the papers, responding to what he sees and reads by phoning aides, members of Congress, friends, and informal advisors. Some days, executive time totally predominates. For instance, he had one hour of scheduled meetings on January 18th and seven hours of executive time. The day after the midterms, he had 30 minutes for a chief of staff meeting, more than seven hours. For executive time, former chief of staff John Kelly introduced the concept of executive time because the president hated being locked into a regular schedule. Responding to Axios reporting, White House press secretary Sarah Sanders said, "While he spends much of his average day in scheduled meetings, events, and calls, there's time to allow for a more creative environment that has helped make him the most productive president in modern history." Unquote.
3: You can lose those briefing papers. They're not really worth a dime, believe me. There's nothing brief about my briefings. They just cut into executive time. I know more than most of my experts. It's true. I'd learn more. From watching a mime They're incredible I'm at my most productive When I'm deep into executive time Checking in with Hannity Watching Laura for a laugh Calling up my oldest To bitch about my staff I'm safe for most of each day From that swamp filled with incredible slime Cause for me, there's no time Like executive time executive time I really should be golfing in that amazing Florida climb but I'm making that major sacrifice for the sake of executive time. I'm trapped inside this White House. Believe me, when no way the stakes are prime. The least I can ask is two-thirds of each day devoted to executive time. Got to know how I am covered To keep ahead of the slobs Of course I have to watch Tucker And keep tabs on Lou Dobbs Got to think about who to attack As an Obstructor and a Wrecker Got to talk about fighting back With my old pal, David Pecker I'm safe for most of each day From that swamp filled with incredible slime Because for me, there's no time like executive time, executive time.
1: Now news of the warm, won't you? Sounds so inviting, doesn't it? Rescuers are caring for 2,000 flamingo chicks. Man, I want to give me a flamingo chick. To... No, sorry. After they were abandoned by their parents in South Africa, according to conservationists, the baby birds breeds, were left in sweltering heat when the water dried up in a dam in the northern Cape province, according to the BBC. They had to be transported 590 90 miles by air to a conservation center in Cape Town. They're being carefully looked after until they're healthy enough to return to their home in the wild. That dam, Camphor's Dam, is home to thousands, tens of thousands of this particular breed, the lesser flamingo. flamingo. That's the uh, evil of two lesser flamingos. But harsh summer heat and a reported lack of water being pumped into the dam caused the area to dry up. It's not known exactly why this caused so many adult flamingos to abandon their chicks. Yeah, I can guess... When news of the birds first broke at the end of last month, experts from the SPCA and other welfare groups immediately inspected the site to see what they could do. The tiny birds were then flown to different places where they could be cared for, including Cape Town. Footage from the Cape Town Center shows the tiny flamingos splashing about and occasionally pecking each other in little dishes of water. They're recovering well and will eventually be released back into the dam. So that's the good news is the little flamingos survived. The drying up. Researchers saw a large number of Himalayan glaciers will melt even if ambitious Paris climate agreement goals are met. The thaw is expected to have a big effect on Asia, disrupting river flows in China and India. According to uh, Agence France Press and Reuters, scientists have warned that two-thirds of the world's, world's third pole will disappear by 2100 if governments Failed to rein in greenhouse gas emissions. A five-year study by the International Center for Integrated Mountain Development, the ICIMOD, the ICIMOD, reported that according to the current trajectory, emissions will lead to five degrees of global warming when the century turns. This will have a drastic effect on the ecosystems in the Hindukush Himalaya region, That mountain area spans eight countries. You're Afghanistan, you're Bangladesh, you're Bhutan, China, India, you're Myanmar, Nepal and Pakistan. It's home to Mount Everest and K2, the two highest peaks in the world. It's also home to some 250 million people and directly or indirectly affects a billion and a half others living in the areas below the mountains. Global warming, according to um, ICIMOD's director or at least the the leader of the report, I, the uh, global warming will transform the area into bare rocks. This is the climate crisis you haven't heard of, he said. Global, global warming is on track to transform the frigid, glacier-covered mountain peaks of the KHK, cutting across eight countries to bare rocks in a little less than a century. Even if governments take ambitious steps under the Paris Agreement, one-third of the ice will melt, according to the study. The glaciers feed into 10 of the world's most important river systems. Thawing would have an impact on food and energy production, as well as pollution. The region, according to the report, will need billions of dollars per year in order to adapt to climate change. And, of course, that will be readily available. Be- scientists have warned that California should brace for more wildfire as global warming drives longer bouts of hot, dry weather. Now, researchers at UC San Diego's Scripps Institute of Oceanography have found a positive trend when it comes to SoCal's battle against destructive blazes. The Santa Ana winds, routinely whipping up walls of flame through brush-covered hillsides, will probably be tempered in coming decades as a result of climate change, according to a study last week in Geophysical Research Letters. According to the study, Santa Ana winds will become about 18 percent less frequent toward the end of the century if climate change is unabated. For fire, at least this element that determines risk carries some good news, says a co-author of the study. The rate of such strong wind events will decrease specifically in the fall and spring. You know, that's when they happen. Anyway, the number of Santa Ana wind events could be nearly cut in half in September and October by mid-century, and in April and May, about 40% less. Now the war on coal. It's it's, uh, catching fire, you might say, if you were... That's careless with your words. Germany, one of the world's biggest consumers of coal, will shut down all 84 of its coal-fired power plants over the next 19 years to meet its commitments in the fight against climate change. The announcement marked a significant shift for Europe's largest country, a nation that had long led in cutting CO2 emissions before turning into a laggard in recent years and badly missing its targets. Coal plants account for 40% of Germany's electricity. That's uh, down from years when coal dominated power production. The plan includes some $45 billion in spending to mitigate the pain in coal regions. It's a big moment for climate policy in Germany that could make the country a leader once again in fighting climate change, said a professor for energy economics at the German Institute for Economic Research. It's also an important signal for the world that Germany is again getting serious about climate change. A very big industrial nation that depends so much on coal is switching it off. The decision to quit coal follows the move by the German government to shut down all its nuclear power plants by twenty twenty two. That was recklessly that was harshly criticized as reckless by business leaders who were worried that it would raise electricity prices and make their industries less competitive. They also pointed out that no other major industrial country followed Germany's lead. The plan to eliminate coal as well as nuclear means Germany will be counting on renewable energy to provide 65 to 80 percent of the country's power by 2040. Last year, renewables overtook coal as the leading source, now providing 41 percent of Germany's electric power. And it's not just Germany. An Australian court this week delivered a landmark ruling rejecting plans to build a coal mine on grounds it would worsen climate change chief justice said a planned open-cut coal mine in new south wales would be in the wrong place at the wrong time this ruling by the new south wales land and environment court was uh, notable for citing not only local impacts of building the proposed mine but also secondary climate change impacts of the eventual use of the coal Quote, it matters not that this aggregate of the project's greenhouse gas emissions may represent a small fraction of the global total. The Justice said not every natural resource needs to be exploited. The case was unusual in referring to the 2015 Paris Agreement and calling climate scientists to testify. Australia's surface temperature had increased by average one degree centigrade over the last century. A global head of climate law at a uh, major Australian law firm said the decision reinforced the trend in legal judgments around the world that directly link fossil fuels and climate change, adding to the growing perceived risk of coal investments, according to the Australian Financial Review. Australia is one of the world's largest producers of coal, the world's largest exporter, fueling power plants in Japan, China, South Korea, and India. It is a judgment of enormous significance, said a solicitor for the Environmental Defender's Office, which represented local residents, against the project. It heralds the arrival of climate litigation in Australia, he said. The Australian Con- Conservation Foundation described the ruling as significant. News of the Warm, ladies and gentlemen, a copyrighted feature of this broadcast. And now, the Apologies of the Week. So sorry. The Customs and Border Protection Office has apologized to a Buzznew- BuzzFeed news reporter who says he'd been extensively questioned about his employer by a Customs and Border Protection officer at Kennedy Airport. David Mack tweeted he'd been questioned by the officer about BuzzFeed's report that President Trump told former lawyer Michael Cohen to lie to Congress about Trump Tower negotiations in Moscow. The administration denies the report and the Office of Special Counsel in the Mueller investigation disputed specific statements as not accurate. According to CBP's website, international travelers entering the U.S. should expect questions about the nature of their trip and the status of their citizenship. Mac is an Australian citizen. Bud's Feed News reports he was returning from the U.K. where he had to renew his work visa. In response, CBP called on Mac uh, called Mack to apologize. The assistant commissioner for public affairs issued a statement reading on behalf of the agency. I would like to extend our apologies to Mr. Mack for the inappropriate remarks made him during his processing upon his arrival to the United States. The officer's comments do not reflect CBP's commitment to integrity and professionalism of its workforce. The comments were that um, the agent was convinced Mueller had personally given a press conference calling us fake news, BuzzFeed, which he didn't. I had to politely assure him that didn't happen while also not wanting to tick him off any further. There were literally dozens of people waiting, and I kid you not, he was about to Google the Mueller response to see if it was televised or at least grill me about it. Mac was later entered into the country. International Ski Federation President Gianfranco Kaspar has apologized to athletes for the controversy call caused after he claimed it is easier to organize the Olympics in countries governed by a dictatorship. The 75-year-old Swiss said the comment was, quote, not meant to be taken literally, but that he took, quote, full responsibility for the drama caused to international ski federations are currently taking place. Casper claimed he was sorry that focus had been taken away from the athletes. In an interview with a Swiss-German newspaper, he was quoted as saying, Dictators can organize events such as this without asking the people's permission. For us, everything is easier in dictatorships. Plenty's been written about bad in-flight meals. Air India's latest gastronomic fail just might take the biscuit. A passenger on a recent Mumbai-bound flight from Bhopal discovered a large cockroach in his breakfast. The passenger said he found the intruder in a lentil-based vegetable stew. I informed the crew, but they ignored me, he told the Times of India. I even objected to their serving food to others, but to no avail. Another passenger tweeted a picture of the offending dish with the caption, Cockroach in food served at Air India flight. The images very clearly show a large cockroach removed from the dish and covered in stew. The airline has since apologized for the incident, issuing a statement on social media. We sincerely apologize for the incident where our valued passenger had a disappointing experience with the meal. Air India always endeavors to ensure our passengers enjoy our services. We've taken serious note of this incident. We have a zero tolerance policy in this respect and have initiated corrective action internally and we're in touch with the aggrieved passenger. Zero tolerance towards cockroaches. Imagine that. I can. Leaked emails published by the website Splinternews.com revealed racist jokes and conspiracy theories spouted and or shared by TD Ameritrade founder Joe Ricketts, the patriarch of the family that owns the Chicago Cubs. Their relations prompted statements from Joe and his son Tom, the Cubs chairman. I deeply regret and apologize for some of the exchanges I had in my emails, Joe said in a statement provided to the Chicago Sun-Times. Sometimes I've received emails that I should have condemned. Other times I've said things that don't reflect my value system. I strongly believe that bigoted ideas are wrong. Joe and his sons have been especially active in conservative politics. The late emails also show Joe was an active participant in spreading the birther conspiracy theory aimed at former President Obama and at one point shared an email that suggested Obama was once a sex worker, had made money smuggling heroin, didn't attend Columbia, lied his way into Harvard and bought a fake diploma. Speaking of airlines, Delta and Coca-Cola have uh, apologized for their uh, suggestive cocktail napkins. Be a little old school. Write down your number and give it to your plane crush. You never know. That was a napkin offered on Delta. Enough people complained that Delta and Coca-Cola apologized for the marketing stunt. The napkins have since been removed from flights. Quote, we rotate Coke products regularly as part of our brand partnership, but missed the mark with this one. Coca-Cola said, we sincerely apologize to anyone we may have offended. You know what else the airline does as part of their brand partnership with Coke? Limit the water served on flight to Dasani. Yep. Florida's top elections official apologized for dressing in blackface as a Hurricane Katrina victim more than a week after he resigned when photos of his Halloween costume were made public. Michael Ertel, Florida's Secretary of State for less than three weeks, said in a fa- Facebook post what he did in 2005 was stupid and he's a better man than he was 14 years ago. For those who have not yet received a personal apology yet, he wrote, I'm sorry. Japan's finance minister apologized this week for saying that childless people were to blame for the country's declining population and rising social security costs. Just before announcing her candidacy for president, Senator Elizabeth Warren once again apologized for, quote, not having been more sensitive about tribal citizenship. After the Washington Post published a 1986 Texas bar registration card where she listed her race as, quote, American Indian. Less than a week into Black History Month, Adidas and Gucci have apologized and pulled products criticized as racist. The offending Gucci item was an $890 black-knit woman's balaclava that could be pulled up over the lower half of the face. The sweater included bright red lips ringing and opening for the mouth. It detailed widely denounced on social media as evoking blackface imagery adidas included an almost entirely white pair of shoes and a line of clothing and sneakers inspired by the harlem renaissance movement and meant to commemorate black history month all white shoes for black history month ladies and gentlemen a reddit user spotted that ikea is currently selling a map with a blank space where new zealand used to be Ikea is responsible for securing correct and compliant motifs on all our products. We regret this mistake and apologize. We'll take the necessary actions, and the product is now being phased out from our shelves. Quote Ikea. Wells Fargo customers erupted on social media as the bank apologized for the second time in a week for problems with its online banking and mobile app. A city council member from a Dallas suburb called Representative Alexandria Ocasio Cortez a bimbo The apologies of the week, ladies and gentlemen, the copyrighted feature of this broadcast. That's it for this week's edition of the Show. Back next week at the same time on radio. And whenever you want it, on your audio device of choice, and it would be just like all of us getting a lot of executive time if you'd agree to join with me then. Would you? already? thank you very much. Uh-huh. Tip of the Le show shop out of the San Diego, Pittsburgh, Chicago, and Hawaii desks. Thanks to Pam Halstead and Thomas Walsh at WWNO New Orleans. The email address of this program, your chance to get Cars I Talk T-shirts. And the playlist of the music heard here on, all at harryshear.com. And I'm on Twitter at The Harry This was the uh, Valentine's Day edition of the program. So this week, don't send a card, send a link. Or a smoky link. The show comes to you from Century of Progress Productions and originates through the facilities of WWNO, New Orleans flagship station of the Change is Easy radio network. So long from Santa Monica.